0: Hey everybody, it's been a while since I made a video. I've been working nights and found that my brain doesn't work as well when I'm working the graveyard shift. A lot has happened since uh, the last video I made. Ukraine finally made some real military gains. Uh, America, a long-time two-party system, pretty much officially became a three-party system after the midterms. The Gestapo raided Mar-a-Lago in a day-long raid based on a fully redacted affidavit. Later, the FBI also took the opportunity to seize the phones of multiple high-profile Republicans because apparently they talk too much. And they raided the house of Mark Hook, who's an activist, and arrested him for shoving a man who was getting in the face of his 12-year-old. In addition, the CDC quietly added horse tea to its list of approved medications for COVID-19. As much as these things need to be talked about uh, today, I'm going to follow up on my last video regarding the sovereignty of God. I got some questions and some feedback and I... So I'm going to address some stuff, namely four things. First, should I pray to a sovereign God since he already knows what I want and what the outcome is? Two, since God already knows who is and isn't going to be saved, doesn't that just make us all moist robots? And where does that leave us with like culpability for sin? And does God's sovereignty make him the author of evil? And fourth and finally, what about verses like 1 Timothy 2.4 and John 3.16 that say God desires for all to be saved and whosoever believes will be saved? So we're going to deal with those. But let's start with, should we pray to a sovereign God? Short answer is yes. In John 16, Jesus said, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So they said to him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, quote, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me, end quote. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you until now you have asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be made full. So Jesus is telling us to pray because of his work on the cross. Not only that, but we can rest knowing that his work on the cross is finished. Now, even though I know this, I still find myself asking sometimes, you know, should I pray about this issue or, you know, God already knows this. Should I even talk to him about it? So I have a story that uh, helps me. I hope it helps you. So Kayla and I have two kids. They're one and three and they love snacks and they would just eat snacks all the time if we let them. But we don't because we as parents are sovereign over the snacks. We uh, are in charge of when our kids get snacks, when they don't get snacks, how much snacks they get, what they're getting. So my kids, you know, they they always ask, you know, Dad can I have a snack? And I know when they can have a snack, you know, if it's in the middle of the morning or they just got it from nap. Well, sure they can have a snack. I like giving them a snack. It makes them happy. And I like making my kids happy. But I also know that when they're not gonna get a snack and when they ask me right before dinner, I know they're not gonna get a snack. When they ask me right before breakfast, they're not gonna get a snack or right after, you know, because I don't want them to upset their tummy or maybe they didn't eat a good supper or whatever it is. I already know the answer, but as a parent, I want my kids to ask me if they can have a snack. I don't want them to just run over to the cabinet and start rifling through stuff, you know? Oh, Dad, it's you always let me have a snack now. Like, I still want them to ask me because uh, I want to make sure that, you know, they're not eating too much and that they're eating, you know, snacks that are pretty decent for them and that they're not doing like, you know, 20 Reese cups or something like that, so. As, as a parent, like, that makes me sovereign, and I want my kids to ask, you know, when they want a snack. Even if, you know, the answer is no. I'll say no. You know, we're going to eat dinner soon, right? And it's the same thing with uh, with God, you know? Uh, as we know and grow in who God is and what He wants, like, we ask things of Him that He wants for us, and uh, and He will give them to us, right? So, Paul says in Philippians, uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, yes, let us pray to a good and sovereign God, because He wants to, and He wants to hear from us, and it's good for us. It's one of the ways that we. Learn to know God better. Now, to question number two: If God already knows who He will save and who He won't, doesn't that make us all moist robots? Like, how can we be culpable for our sin if, if we're it's already been predestined whether we're saved or not? This is one of apologist Frank Turek's favorite objections. He says stuff like, "Well, if God knows we're going to be saved, then I'm just a moist robot." Then. I don't have any say in, in it, and none of it is my work, which none of it is his work. But that doesn't make us a moist robot. And Frank Turek also believes correctly that once a person is saved, they're always saved. You know, you've heard that, one saved, always saved. <coughs> I'm not going to delve too deeply into that bit of theology right now, but I will uh, leave you with this. In John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So if Christian Frank Turek can't choose not to be a Christian, isn't he a moist robot? So while this is a good question, it's a self-defeating argument. It's not a good argument. It's a good question, but it's not a good argument. We're not moist robots. Look back at my story from my child's perspective. My child is learning when they can have snacks and when they can't have snacks. They're still... Figuring out. They feel hungry and they're like, hey, I want a snack because I'm hungry. But maybe it's close to dinner time, you know, so they're learning, oh, it's dinner time now, right? They do things they're not supposed to do. Uh, but me, knowing as a parent, you know, when dinner time is, when snack time is, uh, that, that doesn't make their requests, you know, a robot, even though I know what's going to happen, Right even if I were the strictest of parents and pre-planned everything around them learning a skill like basketball, and I worked and trained them to be great players, they would still be on the court making their own decisions about when to pass, when to shoot, when to dribble. It's an imperfect parable because I'm not totally sovereign over my kids. I mean, I can't choose for them, you know, to obey. Like, they have to do that on their own. However, even though God has directed all of my steps... I don't know them. I'm still learning to be more like God and glorify him. In contrast, if God is not sovereign over everything down to the minutest details, then he isn't sovereign. If I started a car and then put a brick on the gas and got out, I'm not sovereign. I'm not driving the car. I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. That thing is just going where it's going. It would be the same thing if God created and then sat back to watch and see what happened. Just, oh, well, maybe some some of them will get saved. You know, we'll just see. But God didn't do that. He tells Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's Jeremiah 1.5. In Romans, Paul says, quoting scripture, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he has mercy, and he hardens whomever whoever he wills. That's Romans 9, 17 and 18. And again, in Romans 8, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God is at work in every detail from the beginning of time, and chose a people for himself to bring himself glory. Now, the third question, does God's sovereignty make him the author of evil? And if so, doesn't this make God evil? This is Frank Durek's second favorite objection. However, from Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. That's the King James Version. Now, other versions say calamity. So, maybe it's not evil, right? No, not at all. If a hurricane strikes and kills dozens of people, how is that any less a calamity than if a school shooter kills dozens of people? A calamity that the people die. Well, the storm is caused by a person. Yes, it is. The storm is the product of a broken, fallen world from the sin of Adam. Same as the shooter who chose to go into a school and kill people, right? It's the product of the same broken world and the same sin the same calamity, the same evil. The real beauty of this passage from Isaiah is that prior verse is when it starts out. God is talking, and it can be summarized in four words. I am the sovereign. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed, I will go before you and level the exalted places i will break in the pieces of doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron i will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is i the lord the god of israel who call you by your name for the sake of my servant jacob and israel my chosen i call you by your name i name you though you do not know me i am the lord and there is no other besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So yes, God created evil, but also good. Creating that which is evil or used for evil purposes doesn't make God evil. Consider a gun maker who makes two guns. One gun can be used to defend a family, while the other gun can be used to rob a family. The, in neither instance would the maker of the gun be regarded as good or evil because of how his creation is used, unless you're an extreme leftist. <laughs> so let's use a software example, in case you are. Let's take a vehicle, right? So if an automaker makes two cars and one car is used to, you know, for soccer mom to drive her kids back and forth to the soccer practice, go to the store, take her kids to church or school or wherever, that's a good purpose. It's a good car, right? And the second car is used by a drunk driver and he hits somebody and kills him. That's an evil purpose, right? But in neither instance is the car manufacturer beholden as good or evil based on how the vehicles that he made were used, Right? An automaker would be uh, esteemed, whether it's a good automaker or a bad automaker, because of how his cars perform. You know, do they get good gas mileage? Do they have good horsepower? Do they explode often when you start them? Like, those are the things that make that separate the good car makers from the bad ones, right? So, when God makes what is good, but then He turns around and makes something that's bad and used for evil purposes, that doesn't make God evil. God is. Uh, good because of his character, because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he doesn't put up with what's evil. Right. So finally, let's look at uh, these two verses: John three sixteen and 1 Timothy two four. I'm going to read them real quick. John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life." And First Timothy two four says, "God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth." So let's start with whosoever believes. It could mean that simply anyone who believes is saved. Believe being the operative word, is in I believe it's hot outsider. I believe that the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl. I don't really believe that. but Or I believe that the chair across the room will hold my weight if I sit in it. However, there is a better explanation. Let's look at who Jesus is talking to. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who is not only legalistically religious, he practiced his religion that was supposed to point other nations to God, but he practiced his religion in such a way that it often isolated and often ostracized foreigners. Think of uh, how they treated the uh, Samaritans or even the other Gentiles around them. So Nicodemus' question of Jesus is of vital importance. He asked, how can a man be born again when he is old? How can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? Jesus answers him that a person cannot be saved unless he's born by water and spirit. (coughs) He says, are you not a teacher of Israel? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that, in verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So why do all this? Why raise up the Son of Man like the serpent on the cross? Because, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it so that the world, the Jews and the Gentiles, can be saved. Because salvation did not come through the old Jewish law. So salvation is a gift that God gives freely to everyone. John 3, 16 doesn't answer, what are the guidelines for how people get saved? It answers who is eligible for salvation, which is everyone. It means that a person won't be excluded from salvation because they're male or they're female or they're black or white or Asian or Hispanic or they're a child of a rapist or they're a slave or they're a murderer or a thief or a liar or a slanderer. Everyone is eligible for salvation. Everyone can be saved. There is nothing that you can do to be saved which is important to Nicodemus, who lived explicitly around the things he did daily. Jesus was telling Nicodemus that salvation was not strictly through keeping the Jewish law, but by Jesus' death on the cross and subsequent resurrection. That would make Nicodemus' works and our works the product and evidence of salvation. Paul reiterates this in Romans 9 through 12, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Instead, doing with the works. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, "Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame." For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. It's Romans ten nine through twelve. So salvation is available to all. But John three sixteen is not nailing down a prescription for how people are saved. He's saying that salvation is for everyone, and it's not just for the Jews, and it's not just for the Pharisees, and it's not just, for, and it's not done by keeping the law, right? So let's look at First Timothy two four. So uh, before we do that, I should clarify. Like, so when when someone is saved, they do confess and they do believe in their heart, but the believing is the doing, right? So like, I'm sitting in a chair. I believe that this chair is going to hold my weight and it is right because i'm sitting in it but i have mean, said well i believe that chair across the room is going to hold my weight but i'm not going to sit in because i you know that's not that's not belief right there's no fruit in that no one knows if what i believe if i really believe what i believe right so let's move on to first timothy 2 4. It says, God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this verse is sometimes used to bolster the argument that if you believe, you'll be saved by appealing to God's desires. you probably heard it something like, Well, God desires everybody to be saved, so just believe and be saved, right? Now, I think that God wants all people to be saved, so why doesn't he save them? Look at Cain and Abel. God comes to Cain and tells him that his heart is not in the right place and that sin is waiting to overtake him. It's crouching at the door like a lion ready to devour God is asking him to believe in God, to turn and repent of his sin before it kills him. Yet Cain kills Abel anyway. Why didn't God save Cain? Why didn't he save Abel? Why did God save Moses, but not the other babies that Pharaoh killed? Why did God save Jesus, but not the other two-year-olds that Herod killed? God desires that all people be saved, but not all are, just as we reviewed in Romans 10 and also in Isaiah. Because God says, I am the Lord. I do what, I make what is good and evil. I am watching over everything, right? So, God must have an operative desire that outweighs what he wants. Now, that might sound weird, but we do it a lot. I do it. I want—I may want a second piece of chocolate cake. Okay, I really want the whole thing. <laughs> but I refrain because I know that if I eat more or eat too much, I'm going to get a bellyache. I'm going to feel like crap. Right? And in the same way, God desires things. But <coughs> he doesn't necessarily act on them. He may want all of everyone to be saved. But what he really wants the most is... <laughs> His glory, he wants his glory above all else. That's what he wanted, it says in Isaiah, "I am the Lord; there is no other." Or Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, "Who am I going to tell the people of Israel that you are?" He, and God says, "Tell them I am who I say I am." And God says, "He is the only God." All right. So to recap, uh, pray to a sovereign God because He wants to hear our prayers. God is sovereign over every detail in our life, from when and where you were born to whether he saves you or not. God made them both good and evil, and yet God is good. Evil is a means for God to be glorified and to receive glorification. Just as good is. There is none other like God, and while God desires that everyone be saved, and salvation is available to everyone, not everyone will be saved. Some will reject God. But God will be glorified in the rejection, just as he is through the salvation of some. God is sovereign over everything. And that's it for today. Stay savvy, friends.